Today's scripture comes from Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you now, I confess that I need your help this morning, as we all do. Father, whether it is for me to deliver this message or for us to hear this message. And Lord, we ask that you would cover over all of our inadequacies, all of our incompetence, all of our poor character. Father, we come to you in desperate need of your presence among us. Father, we gather not because to amuse ourselves not simply to have something to do on a Sunday morning, but for something holy to occur, something that does not happen anywhere else, something unique, set apart, that even the cosmic spirits above are watching with such interest and intent. Lord, we pray now that you would speak to us through the preaching of the word and that you would manifest your love, your holiness, your goodness, your grace, so that we could come away refreshed and renewed and ready to go in living out the calling that you've given to us of being a blessing to the world. Would you bless this message in spite of the one who brings it? For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's not easy being a Christian, right? Whereas 30, 40 years ago, not only was it socially accepted, it was even commended for a person to publicly display and live out their devotion to Christ. Not so much anymore. Anyone who would have the audacity to publicly profess and to live out their devotion to Christ and to his people would be immediately be branded as a bigot, narrow-minded, backwards, wrong side of history, what have you, but most preeminently, someone who is unaccepting of other people. And this negativity comes from many sources. I am going to highlight two. The first comes from those who support and champion LGBTQ rights. In a time and age where the LGBTQ values and lifestyle are socially accepted. The consequences are anyone who would say that they buy into the scriptures understanding of sexuality and the values that it has in accordance to the scriptures would not only be seen as archaic and primitive, but downright hostile to the point of the fact that if you embrace the Bible's understanding of sex and the way it should be lived out, you would be immediately labeled as someone who is a hater and someone who is, most of all, unaccepting of a certain kind of people. Another source for this negativity against us comes from, surprise, surprise, the Trump administration. With our media's obsession of being very selective on who they spotlight representing us in the media, you know the kind, those who would promote, those who would popularize, those who would celebrate the ideologies and values of this particular president, the consequences of that is all the negativity directed against him gets imputed to every Christian everywhere, no qualifications, it doesn't matter. 
And as a result, there is this cultural, universal consensus that is very negative against us that it basically comes down to this. You Christians are so unaccepting of other people. Here's a sad reality. The culture is right. The culture is right. Now, don't misunderstand. I agree with the culture's assessment of us, not because I agree with the values that leads them to that conclusion, but I say that because, as a pastor, I see firsthand, in my vantage point, situations many times where Christians are very unaccepting of other people. But the other people that I'm thinking of are not those within the LGBTQ community, nor is it to those whom our president directs his media hatred in his various social media apparatuses. No, the other people that I'm thinking of are other Christians. We Christians are notorious of being unaccepting to other Christians. And part of the reason for that is because we are not aware, many of us, of the clear difference between how the Bible understands acceptance and how our culture understands acceptance. We think it's identical. And as a result, many of us import the culture's definition of an acceptance into the community of the church, and all it does is create dysfunction, disjunction, and disunity within the community that should be preeminently characterized according to our Christ of a community that accepts one another. It says it right here in our passage. One of the key marks of identifying the true church of Christ is that we are a community that accepts one another, and yet we don't see that. In whatever category you want to say, ethnically, racially, socioeconomically, ideology-wise, politically driven-wise, we don't. And the question that we want to try and answer that I hope I can, by God's grace, is how do we become the kind of community that Jesus died for us to be? How do we become the community that truly accepts one another? Well, as we take a look at Romans 15, three things that I would like to suggest that our passage teaches us. Number one, we're going to talk about what, what Christian acceptance is not. Number two, we're going to talk about what Christian acceptance is. And finally, we're going to end it with how Christians can accept one another. What it's not, what it is, and how we can do it. Let's jump right in. What Christian acceptance is not. Read again with me verse 1 and 2 of our passage where Paul writes, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, within these two verses, the Apostle Paul tells us two common misconceptions Christians have when it comes to what they think is Christian acceptance. There are two views that Christians will select one of the other of, thinking that one or the other are true manifestations of Christian acceptance. But Paul is going to show us that neither of those are true biblical acceptance at all. So let's go through them one at a time, beginning with the first. <clears throat> Take a look again at what Paul says in verse 1. There's a word that I want you to highlight, I want you to focus on, and that's the word weak. Now, by how he uses this word in this sentence, it's obvious that he's referring to a certain kind of Christian. It's the weak Christian. He's referring to weak Christians. Now, <clears throat> here's the problem. When most people read this description of a particular kind of Christian in the church, the weak Christian, many Christians envision a certain type of person that is the complete opposite of what Paul is thinking of. In other words, when you and I generally read that word weak Christian, we imagine a certain kind of personality, a certain kind of disposition that is not what Paul is thinking at all. And so here's the question. What definition of weakness do we have that we tend to import onto Paul's words that are not what Paul means? Well, it's pretty easy to figure out. According to our culture, a weak person is someone who, I don't know, lacks self-discipline. Someone who has 
addiction problems, you know, someone who is insecure in so many ways, someone who is incompetent, incapable, someone who is insufficient in being the kind of person that they need to be. It kind of has this flavor of someone who's emotionally and psychologically fragile. We just assume that's the kind of person Paul is thinking of. But as we come to find, that is not what Paul is referring to when he refers to a weak Christian. And if you want to know what he is referring to, all you got to do is turn to the chapter before this one, Romans 14, where starting in verse 1, he tells us this. Accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Here, Paul is explaining and describing for us what he means by weak Christian. And he tells us the most key characteristic of a key of, excuse me, of a weak Christian is right there at the end of verse one, what they think is right and wrong. Now that phrase is very telling because what Paul is essentially saying about weak Christians is they're basically, how should I put it? They're very opinionated. They're very opinionated about what they think is right and wrong. And because they're so opinionated, most often it results in them getting into heated arguments with other Christians. You see, these kinds of Christians look at other Christians and they judge whether or not these Christians behave in a way that they think is appropriate, what they think is right and wrong. And when they don't, they go out of the way to put it in their face like, dude, What's up with you? You are messed up. You are living in sin or you have no character. You are so unteachable. And as a result, all it does is create contentious conflict. But that's not all. Look at all. Look at another way that Paul describes these weak Christians. What do you say about them? They only eat vegetables. <laughs> what is that about? Well, let me explain. In the days of the ancient world, <clears throat> meat was very, very expensive. That is, of course, unless you bought meat that was previously used in a pagan worship service. Those meats were slashed at discounted price so that everyday people, which most Christians were back then, could afford and eat this meat. However, there were some Christians who were so bothered by the fact that these meats were previously used in an idolatrous worship service that they would say, you know what? I'm not going to eat something that participated in the false worship of a false god. And so I'm going to be a vegetarian. And you know what? I'm not the only one who should be a vegetarian, but you should be a vegetarian. You should be all of you guys. Every Christian everywhere for all time should be a vegetarian. And so they would restrict themselves to a strict vegetarian diet. Thank God that doesn't apply to us today. But that doesn't mean that there aren't weak Christians. That doesn't mean that there aren't Christians out there who have certain regimented ritualistic lifestyles that is so strict, whether it's not watching secular TV, not watching secular music, not listening to secular music, not hanging out with secular people, not going to the clubs. Does everyone ever go to the clubs anymore? Not drinking alcohol, not smoking cigars, not doing this, not doing that. We have many weak Christians today. And so when you put it all together, you understand who the weak Christian is. According to Paul, they are the legalists, right? People who are very strict on themselves with rules and regulations and traditions that are even in the Bible. And yet they act as if it is in the Bible. And furthermore, these weak Christians who don't see other Christians conforming to these unspoken rules and regulations will look down on will condemn and judge and say, you weak, immature Christian. But the irony is that they're the ones who are weak. They're the ones who are immature, not the ones that they are accusing of being immature and weak. 
Now, the point Paul is making here is simply this. Biblical acceptance or Christian acceptance is not when a Christian accepts another Christian standards as if they're in the Bible when, in fact, they're not in the Bible at all or they're no longer applicable to people in the faith. Let me give you a couple examples. Back in the 60s and 70s, many Christians embodied a very collective weak mindset that had a very strong conservative flavor to it. For example, a lot of Christian schools did not permit members within their student body to date. They didn't allow them to go watch movies. They didn't allow them to have long hair if you were a boy. They didn't allow you to wear pants if you were a girl. Some Christian schools went so far as to not allow their students to drink coffee, have ketchup or mustard with their meals because they thought it was too indulgent. Now, you laugh at that and you scoff. What a bunch of idiots, but don't laugh too hard. Because in our day and age with this generation, we have a collective weak mindset that tends to be more of a liberal flavor as well. I cannot tell you as a pastor, as a church leader, how much unspoken tacit pressure, coercive pressure I feel amongst my peers and amongst the unofficial leaders of evangelicalism today telling me that if I don't lead this church to where this church and every church around it is all about social justice, racial reconciliation, and make that to be the most important item on the agenda, which by the way, I do value. But if I don't make it the most important priority, then I am and this church is subpar. We are weak. We Christians are so notorious for elevating our preferences to the authority level of God's law. And we expect not only ourselves, but the people around us to conform to them. Otherwise, You're living in sin. I'm living in sin. No, that is not Christian acceptance. That's not biblical acceptance. That's sin. And if that's how you think, I'm sorry to say, the people who you point the finger as being weak and immature is actually the opposite. It's you who are weak. It's you who are immature. Now, with that said, we should be careful not to go to the other extreme and fall into the second misconception that Paul wants us to be aware of as we come to understand what biblical Christian acceptance is. Consider again what he says in verse two. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, the thing I want you to notice in this verse is that phrase, for his good to build him up. Paul is telling us a condition that must be met in order for acceptance to be considered biblical and Christian acceptance. It must be the kind of acceptance that results in the person that you're accepting to be built up, right? For his own or her own spiritual good. Now, by saying it this way, it is possible, according to this text, by implication, that there is a type of acceptance that is not good for the person that you are accepting, and it doesn't build them up spiritually. And we see examples of this many times, mostly in the dying liberal mainline churches today. Oh, you're a chronic alcoholic and you have no expectations to change. It's okay. We don't judge. Come and be a member of our church. You can serve in various capacities. You can drink as much as you want. Do what you want to do. We accept you. We affirm you. Oh, you're an atheist. You don't believe in Jesus. In fact, you don't think there was an actual historical Jesus, a popular view today. That's fine. You can be a member of our church. We don't judge. We accept all. Hey, by the way, you're very good with your business that you own, would you mind consider serving as our treasurer or maybe consider being an elder of our church? What's my point in all this? Here's my point. 
As much as Christian acceptance is not conforming to unbiblical standards, that doesn't mean it's not conforming to real biblical standards. Let me say that again. As much as Christian acceptance isn't conforming to unbiblical standards, that doesn't mean it's not conforming to real biblical standards. In other words, Christian acceptance is not blind acceptance. It's not unconditional acceptance. Paul makes it clear. If you want to accept someone in the category of biblical Christian acceptance, it must meet the goal of saying that this kind of acceptance will result in them being built up and that being good for them spiritually. I don't know about you, but life teaches me that whenever you have something that's good for you and something that builds you up, it's not easy. It's not comfortable. And almost always it requires pain. It requires sacrifice It requires being challenged. It requires change. If you just accept people blindly by accepting legitimate sinful behaviors or legitimate sinful beliefs, that isn't practicing Christian acceptance or biblical acceptance at all. And you are harming them spiritually, which is downright evil. So there you have it. Two common misconceptions of acceptance that we see in the church today but does not conform to how the Bible understands true acceptance in Christ. So here's the question. What is true biblical or Christian acceptance? And that leads me to my second point. Let's read again verse 1, where Paul again says, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Here Paul identifies for us a real-life example of someone who embodies biblical acceptance. What does he refer to them as? The strong or the strong Christian. Who are the strong Christians? Well, in a nutshell, strong Christians are those who understand Scripture well enough to where they can differentiate the difference between God's laws that apply to everybody and certain standards of God's law that only apply to a certain few. In other words, these Christians are very mature in their understanding, in their meditation, in their understanding of the worldview of Scripture to where they know there is a difference between the standards of God's laws that apply to every person no matter who they are And yet also recognizing that there are certain laws, certain standards of God that only apply to a selective few based on that person's individual's issues and tendencies. Let me give you a real life example where we see this. Uh, Let's talk about wealth. Let's talk about money. This seems to be a real contentious issue in the church today. There's some Christians out there who say that having a lot of money, being wealthy is downright wrong. Okay. A rich Christian in their minds is not a real Christian. They're false Christians because... The Bible says who true, genuine followers of Christ should not be wealthy. They should not be rich. And they might justify that by citing 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. And they say, see, the Bible says that you should not have money. But that's not what it says. The Bible does not say that you should not have money as a Christian. The Bible does say you should not love money. And here's the thing, folks. You can love money and not have a lot of it, right? I think we can testify to that during our college years, maybe even now. And if that's true, does that not imply that the opposite is also true? That you can have a lot of money, but not necessarily love the money that you have. Here's the thing. If you're one of those guys or if you're one of those gals who's always fantasizing about your next raise, about the next bigger paycheck, so that you can further fantasize about all the gadgets, all the trinkets that you get with that money that 
consequently leads you to be less generous with the more money you have? Yes, I would say for you, it's a sin to be rich. You should not seek after wealth because if you had wealth, you'd be living more in sin. That's obvious. But just because you're weak with money doesn't mean everyone else that you go to church with or everyone that you share the name Christian with is also weak with money. In fact, some people are very strong when it comes to money. And these are not necessarily wealthy Christians, but they are mature Christians who, regardless of their financial status, are strong in their mindset with regards to mammon, in that they love God, not money. They use money, not people. They're the type of Christians who, regardless if they're rich or not, understand that money itself is not inherently evil, but they're wise enough to know that money is inherently dangerous. And so they're very cautious. They're very wise on how they view money, why they save money, and what they spend their money on. Those are strong Christians, you see? So let's say, for example, if one of these strong Christians does get a raise and he has more money coming his way or her way, one of the characteristics of what these kinds of Christians would do is not, let me buy a bigger house, let me buy a newer car, let me buy the latest flat screen TV, let me get the newest, trendiest clothes, or the latest phone, right? Rather, they say, let me prayerfully, habitually, strategically think of ways of how I can steward this resource God has given me that belongs to him, that can help the broken, the disenfranchised, the hungry, the poor, the lost. And that's the mindset that they have. And in many ways, that's what drives them to make more money so that they can be used by God for those very things right now before any of you guys who think you're strong with money start patting yourself on the back thinking that you're hot stuff you need to understand something just because you're strong in one area of life let's say money does not mean that you're not weak in another area of life right whether it be lust whether it be covetousness whether it be alcohol every single person in this room has a weakness. Every person in this room has a strength. It happens to the best of us. doesn't matter how stellar, how long, and how faithful you have walked with Christ. Every person that has walked on God's green earth or will ever walk on God's green earth has a weakness, no matter what your spiritual caliber or pedigree may be. If you guys remember the Apostle Peter, Jesus' second in command, the leader of the twelve. Right? The one who is the head honcho amongst Christ's followers. And do you remember what Paul recounted in a story in the book of Galatians of how Peter was at a church made up of mostly non-Jewish Christians and he was fellowshipping and eating with them. But then when some prominent Jewish elders from the Jerusalem church came, what did Peter do? He cut off fellowship from these non-Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because he didn't want to have a bad gossiping reputation that he eats with unclean Christians. And you remember what Paul did? He got in his face for his hypocrisy and he said, Peter, how dare you undermine the very gospel you're called to champion by being such a hypocrite so publicly like this? Look, if someone of the caliber of Peter can be weak, that means no one in here is safe. Every single one of us has weaknesses in our lives. I mean, why else would Paul even say that we're to accept one another unless it assumes that we all have weaknesses that rub each other the wrong way and agitate us? 
He would not give that command at all if the fact that we were not all weak and yet all strong at the same time. Look again at what he says in verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the feelings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Notice Paul doesn't say to the weak, dude, weak people, just get over your weakness. Stop being so legalistic and stop judging your strong brothers and sisters. He doesn't do that. He puts all the onus of responsibility on who? The strong, the mature ones. And what's the responsibility he gives the strong? He says, accept your weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. And do not show off your strength so that you could rub your strength in the face of your weak brothers. Right? Like drinking a can of beer in front of their face, knowing that they have struggled with that very sin of alcoholism. Don't do that! Or let's go back to that example of the money situation. Let's say a pastor, not me, I would never do this, but let's say a pastor comes up to you, right, and says, hey, you have a big house, you make good money, and you're maturing your faith, can you host this event, maybe the women's prayer event? Can you do that? Can you just do that for us? And you know that there are some sisters in this congregation who might judge you for having all this wealth, and you want to use this as a teaching opportunity, like, yeah, pastor, I'll do that because I know this person is going to be there and I know I can do this and I know in my mind I'm not sinning and I can just show them how I'm being used by God to show how strong I really am. Now, I'm so thankful none of you have done that and I know you will never do that. But if you did, what you'll be telling that weaker brother or sister in Christ is nothing but this, I don't accept you. That's all you're going to be communicating. That's all you're going to be saying. I do not accept you. You're not part of my life. We are not in fellowship together. I don't recognize you as my brother or sister. I have no responsibility over you. That's your problem. Keep it to yourself. Whatever. That is absolutely wrong. And Paul tells us that we who are strong, what should we be? We should be weak for the sake of of our weak brothers and sisters in Christ. So going back to that illustration, if a pastor, again, not me, because I would never do this, said, can you host? I don't know, pastor. I don't want to host, because I've been hosting a lot, and I know there's another sister in this congregation who wants to host too, but might feel a little insecure about it because, you know, historically, always can we maybe ask that person to host? Because I believe that when they host, God can do great things. And I'm confident that God can do something great through them. Even if they think they couldn't in their weakness. I'm confident God uses us in our moment of weakness. Hear me when I say this. A community that truly accepts one another. A community that is really there for one another. In the way that God calls us to be. Recognizes that everyone in here, no matter how weak they are, has something positive and unique to contribute to everyone else. I love one theologian by the name of Robert Lupton, who's the founder of Focus Community Strategies, a nonprofit that ministers in inner city churches. He says this, quote, one of the things that we have to come to believe is that everyone has something to contribute in the life of the community, that no one is so poor that they have nothing to bring to the exchange, end quote. What's my point? My point is this. When you're accepting a weaker or brother sister in Christ, you're not accepting their weakness. You're accepting them. You're essentially communicating to them, look, brother, look, sister, even though this is an area of difference between us, even though this might be an area of disagreement between us, this will not dictate 
on whether or not I will love you, be in fellowship with you, be in relationship with you, or be in community with you. I will not quit. I will not quit you. I will not quit us. This is our community. And I need you in my life as much as you need me in your life. And not because I'm stronger than you, but because where you're weak, where I'm strong, the likelihood is you're also strong where I'm weak. And just like I can come to you in a moment of strength to encourage you and to empower you, not by exercising my strength over you, but by relinquishing my strength, you can do the same for me and extend grace to me so that we come together and become the kind of community that really lives out this call of accepting one another. What is true biblical acceptance? Biblical Christian acceptance is this. It's being willing to sacrifice the opportunities and privileges that are legitimately yours so that you can bless and encourage someone who is weaker to grow and mature in their faith. Again, true biblical acceptance is being willing to sacrifice the opportunities and privileges that are legitimately yours so that you can bless and encourage someone who is weaker to grow and mature in their faith. That's what it takes to accept. Not sacrificing things that you should sacrifice because it's wrong, but that you're willing to sacrifice things that you don't have to sacrifice because it results in your weaker brother and sister also not being stumbled and also having fellowship with you. Now, here's the question. How do you do that? Because let's be honest, giving up things is hard to do when we know we need to do it because it's bad for us. That's hard in itself. How much more harder must it be to give up things that we shouldn't have to give up? We don't need to give up because it isn't sinful. And yet we know we should do. This leads me to the final point, how Christians can accept one another. Verses 5 to 7, we read, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you can glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praises to God. Here in these verses, Paul gives us two things that we need to keep in mind if we are to accept one another. Or maybe a better way to put it, he gives us one thing that leads to the second thing that is the characteristic of Christian acceptance. The first thing he tells us is we need to keep in mind Jesus. Verse 7, see how he says we need to accept one another as Christ accepted you? How did Christ accept you, Christian? You know how he accepted you? Did he accept you by you first coming to terms with his strength, which resulted in you having to live a holy, perfect life to be as strong in holiness as he is by never breaking the law? By never committing any sin? Did he say, I will accept you if you match my strength. If you come to my level. Or did Jesus relinquish his strength? Did he relinquish his divine prerogatives and benefits and come to us in a form of weakness? Ah, I think we know the answer. The gospel tells us that God came into this world as Jesus Christ. And he didn't come with pomp and posh. He came in an isolated, unknown place of the world that was conquered by powerful people, and he lived a lonely, solitary life in a no-name city, in a no-name town, that ultimately culminated in him dying on the cross so that he could pay the full penalty of all of your weaknesses, all of your sins. Why? So that the result would be you would be built up, and your ultimate good would come to you in the form of the forgiveness of your sins, eternal life, and union with Jesus. In other words, Jesus did all of that so you would be acceptable 
in the eyes of a perfect and strong and holy God. That is what you have to keep in mind. And when you keep that in mind, that will lead you to the second thing that makes up biblical acceptance. And that is what? Read again what it says in verse 6. So that with one heart and mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the ways that you know you really believe you've been accepted by God in Jesus through the gospel is that it makes you want to glorify God. And that's simply another way of saying it makes you want to just love God in the form of praise whether it's actual literal praise or a life of praise. One of the ways you know you got it, one of the ways you really believe it, is that it makes you want to love God in a very passionate way. But here's the thing. It makes you want to love God in such a way that your individual life is incapable of satisfying. When God changes you and comes into your life, it creates a love for him that is so intense, it is so beyond what your individual capabilities are capable of. Which means what? You need a community. You need other people to live out what's inside of you individually, this intense love that goes beyond your capabilities. That's the church. That's the community. Let me give you a tangible illustration. It's a little cheesy, but you know me, I'm all about cheesiness a couple years ago you remember when people were on youtube or facebook and they were putting their um proposals online i don't know it was like around like 2011 to 2014 everyone was posting on facebook you know their proposals and surprise proposals and one particular proposal that was very popular was the flash mob proposal you remember that and there was one particular one uh that this girl was with her girlfriends obviously it was all set up by her fiance without her knowing and without warning, a bunch of strangers start dancing to her favorite song, Michael Jackson, you know, The Way You Make Me Feel. You know that song, right? I love that song. But anyway, yes, I listen to non-Christian music too on Sunday sometimes. But anyway, these people are like dancing to Michael Jackson. She's like, what's going on? And they're all looking at her with such intensity like, yeah, this is for you, girl. And then out of nowhere... All of her friends, all of her family start coming up. And all of a sudden, she's like, I think I know what this is. Right? And marching band comes out. When it finishes the performance, the head leader of the marching band takes off his head. Who is, who is it? You know who it is. It's her fiance. And he gets on his knees. And he says, will you marry me? I love you. Now, could this dude have gone to his apartment, make a nice candlelight dinner in the privacy of his home, invite his fiance, says, will you marry me? Yeah. And would she have said, Yes? Yeah! But that wasn't enough for him. Because his love for his fiancée required something beyond himself, something beyond his individuality. He needed other people to match the intensity, his individual intensity of his love for God. Do you know why the church exists? The church exists to help you satisfy the intense individual love you have for God because it matches God's intense, personalized, individual love for you. And the church helps you in the form of praise, whether it be in literal praise, whether it be in the praise of building a church together, raising the next generation, reaching out to the poor, learning how to love and forgive one another, to be tolerant one another with much endurance, as Paul says, so that through all this act of praise, you glorify God, you give God to him what you so desperately want but can't do on your own. When you understand that, then all of a sudden you found something that's more important than you satisfying your own pleasures that come from the legitimate blessings that come from you being a strong Christian. 
That becomes more important, which means who is more important than your strength, the weaker brother and sister, because they can give to you what is of greater priority than what you give yourself in your own strength, whether it's a nice beer, whether it's, you know, a posh vacation somewhere that's very expensive. None of that matters, but the community that you're a part of. Because by accepting one another, you get to display glory to the Lord by living out your life of heartfelt praise to him. That's why we accept one another. Because you give to me what I can't do for myself so that I can do what's inside of me, as I hope I and everyone else can do for you. But here's the question. Do we do that? This is something that I think um, lately I've been thinking about a lot, almost losing sleep over this past week, thinking about. I want to challenge us to think about what it means to truly accept one another. What does it mean to live it out? Because I tell you, we live in a culture that's not going to help us to do that. They're saying a lot of things about us that I don't think is true. And yet, it is true when it comes to how we are with one another. And I hope and pray that as we grow together, grow old together, so long as God allows this church to continue to exist on his timing, that this can be something that can be lived out. So if the world watches, they'll see something different than what they have seen or what they think they see for the past few years. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Father, um, it's been a hard week. It's been a hard season. In the eyes of the world, we feel very discouraged. And yet, isn't that what you promised, that this world would not necessarily love us or be kind to us? We know. And yet it's still hard. Father, help us to become a community that doesn't compromise, but also does not lose conviction. Help us to be a community that really loves one another and accepts one another, not because we're strong, but because we use our strength to cover over each other's weaknesses. Father, I pray that NCF can be a place where we can be weak instead of just promoting our own strength to one another. Lord, it's been <clears throat> a season where there's been a lot of questions, a lot of thoughts, maybe even some doubts circulating in the hearts and minds of some of our memberships. God, only you can do what you've called us to do, and only we, you can make us be what you've called us to be. Would you help us to do that now? For we come to you in desperation, for we cannot rely on ourselves. We can only rely on you. Would you hear us now? For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.